Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, building the next generation of DOD's cyber workforce, and how governance is advancing USAID's mission. It's Thursday, January 19th. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast, where you'll hear the latest news and trends facing government leaders. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Billy Mitchell. The number one CRM, Salesforce Customer 360 for Public Sector, is an integrated platform for public services. It features relationship management, case management, and much more. To learn more, go to salesforce.com slash government. The Defense Department is getting ready to release a new cybersecurity workforce strategy early this year. DOD CIO John Sherman says the Pentagon needs to think differently about how cyber talent comes in and out of government. Jonathan Ryber is Vice President of Cybersecurity Strategy and Policy at Attack IQ and former Chief Strategy Officer for Cyber Policy in the Office of the U.S. Secretary of Defense. The Defense Department is ready to release a new cybersecurity workforce strategy early this year. DOD CIO John Sherman says the Pentagon needs to think differently about how cyber talent comes in and out of government. Jonathan Ryber is Vice President of Cybersecurity Strategy and Policy at Attack IQ and former Chief Strategy Officer for Cyber Policy in the Office of the U.S. Secretary of Defense. Jonathan, thanks for joining me today. Jonathan, I'd like to start by asking, how can the DOD make itself a more attractive, uh, prospective uh, employer of cyber talent as it prepares to release this new strategy in 2023? The department is extremely attractive right now. It's the only organization outside of the intelligence community, and it includes a large parts of the intelligence community, where you can break into foreign networks and data to defend the country from incoming attack. It's the only legal means for doing that. And so you can operate at the nexus of intelligence operations and defense operations online legally, learning about the adversary, developing capabilities to target them and and, and blunt incoming attacks. Um, and that that means that DOD has developed this immensely talented workforce within the department as it's created tracks for cyberspace operations and, and supporting cyberspace operations, both for, for the military and for civilians um, from day one. And, I'm, you know, this is this is everybody within the department. The cyber mission force is 6,200 plus. I think it's gotten bigger. Um, and so you have non-commissioned officers and officers rising up the ranks, doing operations, academies like West Point and the Naval Academy. But, you know, there's two million people within DOD and everybody wants to do something meaningful. That's that's why they're there in a lot of ways. And they can do unique cyberspace operational jobs for five, 10 plus years as they're rising up the ranks uh, and then become leaders in the force, as we've seen with the buildup of Cyber Command 12 years ago now when it was launched. You now have people like T.J. White or Paul Nakasone who've risen up from, uh, you know, in colonels or captains in their cases to then become three and four stars running running all the way up to the top. And then they know that you can have a lucrative career after you leave, right? Like T.J. certainly, when, when you retire from the military, you have more time to do other things after. So I think it's not a question of how things, how attractive things can be. It's a really a question of people being in the right positions and doing the right things. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's where we wanted to go next. Uh, what are the jobs and how does the DOD better identify uh, the types of cyber roles that it needs when it comes to the cyber workforce so that people are in the roles that make most sense for the nation's needs and people's skill sets? Yeah, so you have to think about you have to think about what you're trying to defend, what you need to defend, 
and then what the adversary is doing, right? And so the commander of US Cyber Command and the subcomponents that flow through it in, in the military services, as well as the civilian agencies and the departments that support the military, all those things have to be looked at holistically when you think about the purposes that you're trying to achieve. And, and so the commander of Cyber Command and the director of the NSA has made regular assessments of the forces readiness and then also gets outside assessment or outside readiness assessments from within the department. And if he or she needs to make adjustments, they work with others in the department to make big or small investments. And those decisions are made in consultation with the secretary and the four stars um, for how for how billets will be apportioned over time. And that's that's what led to the creation of the cyber mission force, gosh, almost uh, 10 years ago, I guess. Um, and then within the department, there's a, there's a very strong series of internal assessments from a readiness standpoint uh, and evaluative standpoint, and then op also operational tests and evaluation. So there's at least three or four different means within the department that looks at the force and says, are things working the way that they should? And this takes up a lot of time and attention for um, certainly the deputy secretary, because that person has a function where they're doing operations and management of assessing the department's performance. So that's a large part of the deputy secretary's job is to make sure that the military is ready for those kinds of operations. And is this an area where industry can help? Obviously, it's a big issue that DOD is working on internally, but is there an opportunity for those third-party external industry partners to help in this? Yeah, definitely. You know, my, my former boss, Ash Carter, who had his memorial service at the National Cathedral, um, his memorial service happened last week. He used to like to say, as the former chief buyer of the department, that the, the Defense Department doesn't build anything, right? It contracts out to industry to build capabilities. Now, of course, it, the one thing that the military does build is people, right? There's a huge massive investment in training and personnel. But when it comes to actually building technology or capabilities, that's the function of industry really overall. From defensive capabilities to offensive capabilities, there's, there's, there's a strong nexus there um, between DOD and the military uh, and industry. One of the things, though, that I think is very important, just not just for small companies and, 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 and providers, but actually for big technology companies as well, is to, is to exercise and prepare your defenses. So I like to, you know, I like to say exercising and, and testing your defense capabilities is a really vital function. And industry can do that with the government. Within the government itself, there's not enough testing of security capabilities, meaning like what are your defenses, what are your people? We know that what the adversary will do. Right. We've 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 existed now since 2015 with the MITRE attack framework for seven years where it's no longer you no longer have to have classified capabilities to see what is the adversary going to do. We know the techniques and, and tactics from privilege escalation to lateral movement to data theft and destruction that they do. But organizations aren't adopting a mindset that says we know that they're going to do this. So it's, all, it's almost like if you were a World Cup team and you expected to defeat Lionel Macy. And, but you never trained for, for preparing against him. You wouldn't, you wouldn't succeed. So I think one of the things that I'd like to see industry and government doing together is really improving their, their operational testing and, and training. So as we close out, Jonathan, um, let's take it a little bit more broadly. Uh, and, and looking at the cyber threat landscape, um, how can U.S. tech leaders continue to prepare for and defend against cyber threats posed by China, Russia, and other adversaries? And are there things that we aren't doing that we should be doing um, in, in 
the mindset that there's going to be a point in time where, uh, you know, we are going to be facing off with, with those adversaries more directly? Yeah, so obviously over the last year since Russia invaded Ukraine, there's been this massive escalation of preparedness for cyber attacks emanating from Russia. And I think one of the things we've seen and we were anticipating for years before then was this deeper levels of cooperation between companies like Google, Microsoft, uh, and the Department of Defense as they sort of look at what the adversary is doing and prepare to take take operations using their own platform to keep adversaries from using their technology to conduct attacks. And Microsoft has been very public about what it's done, but it's certainly not the only one. So I think as we look towards this situation with China right now and learning from what's happened with Russia, keeping Russia in mind as well, there are opportunities for big technology companies and the government to exercise together and say, what's going to happen to actually share operational capabilities for a China contingency, which could happen uh, over time and say, are we ready in the event that these things happen? I, I like to say that the technology sector can provide a force augmentation for DOD on a voluntary basis in the event that there is a conflict and the department needs to be ready and prepared to ask for help if and when it needs it. And then obviously the industry needs to continue to build the best technologies in the world for the government to use. And that's, I think, there's a commercial public sector alignment here where um, the big technology companies and startups like mine are building things that are immensely necessary and needed. And so they're providing defense capabilities and that continued evolution. You think about things like the adoption of zero trust as a sort of still a little bit of a greenfield capability as, as, as government agencies adopt zero trust strategies. So you want to see more and more of that happening. Jonathan, thanks so much for your thoughts today. It's been a tremendous conversation and hope we can do it again soon. That'd be great. Thanks for having me. You can learn more about DOD's cybersecurity workforce at the dailyscooppodcast.com. Salesforce brings the public sector and customers together in the digital age. To access the new Veteran Mental Health and Resiliency Resources module, go to trailhead.salesforce.com. The U.S. Agency for International Development has a new Chief Information Officer. Jason Gray has been CIO at USAID now for about six months, after six years as the Department of Education CIO. In this interview with Scoop News Group's Wyatt Cash and KPMG's Dan Gruber, Gray starts by explaining how he's prioritizing digital transformation and service delivery at his new organization. I'm going to break it down into two two questions. Uh, first is going to be on how I'm prioritizing, uh, which, uh, of course, there's numerous factors involved with there, such as business value, uh, risk, cost, budget, uh, time to implement uh, for a few. Um, the, the second piece, which is really on uh, ensuring streamline and effective decision-making, um, a lot of that uh, I have a non-technical answer for, uh, and that's really about building strong relationships uh, with the business and key stakeholders. I have certainly found in my career that that is key, and currently at uh, USAID, it's an international uh, organization, you know, government organization with over 80 locations globally, um, the need to build relationships uh, to make decisions is absolutely key. Um, I currently have only been here just a, a few months, uh, but have already met with over 90% of the key leadership team here, which the focus is really on uh, establishing trust because you have to build trust so that you know that they will trust that you're making the right decisions uh, and understand why from a you know, streamlining and decision-making standpoint. 
Um, it's also really important to ensure that your entire team understands your processes because they need to be fluent so that when your customers are asking you, why are we doing this? Or why do we have to follow this process? It's not from a compliance related activity. It's they understand the value add and what's driving the governance and the value that it means to them as well. So solid governance is key, uh, not only to, as you mentioned earlier, following policies, laws, and the rapid change of uh, things that come to us every single day. So those are a few. I appreciate that. Uh, so Dan, from your perspective, you know, governance obviously is key to how government organizations define and apply technical best practices to minimize risk, but there's obviously no one size fits all approach. Can you share some examples of organizations you've worked with or you're aware of that can ensure that their operating models, uh, you know, work within the constraints of their business strategy and technical environment, as well as broader governance? Uh, sure. So steering the enterprise in a single direction to reach a common goal is at the heart of any governance program. It's critical for organizations to understand that governance is all about efficient decision making, and therefore the operating model uh, must also be efficient. While most are familiar and often only apply technical governance, we at KPMG have found success with a three-tiered governance model. Uh, the model is geared towards streamlining decisions, as Jason mentioned, and removing roadblocks, not only at the technical level, the first tier, but also at the second and third tiers, which are the portfolio and strategic levels. All three tiers, in our experience, have, uh, provide essential data and value. Uh, the first tier, the technical governance uh, tier, aims to ensure that the platform remains in a high state of performance and health, thus reducing technical risks and defining uh, by defining and monitoring adherence to technical uh, policies. The second tier portfolio governance is geared towards ensuring that only appropriate programs that are tied to strategic objectives are funded and authorized, reducing operational risk by centralizing demand intake process and prioritizing the backlog. The third tier strategic governance aims to increase the alignment to strategic priorities by defining the vision and the strategy, reducing financial risk by ensuring that there's an appropriate budget and the resources to do the work. Finally, we've, we found that having a, a trusted advisor, as Jason mentioned, in uh, a ServiceNow certified master architect uh, to serve and as a conduit across all three tiers has been instrumental in ensuring an organization achieves its targeted outcomes. Interesting to hear how both of you are talking about the importance of trust in, in this. Um, Jason, I'd love to get back to you. I know you're still um, just three months in or so, uh, but maybe can you share some lessons from your prior experience in government about, you know, how to achieve uh, gains in, uh, you know, the role of governance in a technical environment? And maybe what steps are you hoping to implement um, to ensure governance strategies, you know, still remain agile and flexible in your new capacity? Thank you. Yes. Um, while I am relatively new here, I was at uh, the Department of Education as our CIO uh, for just over six years. Um, and the wonderful thing about government uh, is governance is pretty um, standard meaning there's processes that we have to follow. Uh, so the transition has been really smooth. Um, I will say that having sound governance structures, policies, processes in place is key. 
And part of the agility is being able to manage the day-to-day -day operations uh, as uh, new requests come in and what do you do with intake and how do you process that? But it's also in the ability and the flexibility to adjust to the unexpected. Uh, you mentioned earlier about uh, we have a lot of different mandates that happen. Uh, the Hill will pass a law or the White House will have an executive order or will have some sort of uh, binding operational directive where we have to do certain things very quickly. Um, and what's wonderful is that our processes are built in a way so that we can accommodate. So we have the ability to streamline uh, processes, to expedite uh, approvals. I think a really, really great example uh, comes from uh, my time at education, but also here, it's the same exact. When the pandemic hit, uh, we found ourselves in a situation where overnight, everyone suddenly had to be home uh, and work from home. And we needed to have solid governance processes that allowed us to provision laptops, to provide credentials for the people to access the environment, to bring on and onboard new people uh, to the agencies. Uh, and I was pleasantly, um, I won't even say surprised, I was um, happy to come here and see the same exact things that have happened here. So um, government, I think it does a really good job of being able to be agile and flexible with the constant churn. Uh, another thing that we're focused on here, uh, the administrator uh, has been pushing uh, burden reduction, uh, primarily focusing on ways that we can delegate decisions to lowest optimal level. So we're empowering others to uh, make decisions at the appropriate level, uh, removing redundant or duplicative processes, uh, which we all love to do, uh, and asking ourselves the value add behind each decision and process continuously so that it continues to mature and improve over time. So those are a, a couple of the ways. Again, um, I'm relatively new to the agency, so perhaps uh, several months from now we can have a more in-depth conversation. Thank you. Well, we'd love to do that and certainly appreciate your point about the focus on the people and processes if technology is supposed to really get the traction we all hope it will and the importance probably of training as well. Um, Dan, back to you and kind of wrapping up, you know, it's clear that uh, IT needs to be simpler and, and more streamlined and probably better integrated, I think you would say. And, and so uh, simplifying IT delivery, you know, really is a key element to um, making more efficient and automated experiences for the public. Can you highlight any um, programs that you're watching or keeping an eye on that's good examples of providing value while also meeting mission goals? Sure. Uh, in, in my experience, the most successful ServiceNow programs have been those that have, have started in the CIO shop, uh, supporting the back office, but ultimately through solid delivery and great adoption programs bled into the front office or the mission side of the organization. While technically you can start your ServiceNow journey in the front office, we found that starting in the back office allows the organization time to mature its governance processes, uh, many of those processes that, that Jason was talking about. Uh, this way, when the time comes for, uh, for the organization to support the dynamic nature of the mission, the streamlined processes for decision-making and removing those roadblocks are already in place. You know, while it's critical to have governance in place, it's also equally as important to have an open line of communication to IT about uh, mission needs. 
this ensures the mission needs are heard and can help shape the organization's strategic vision and prioritization on the platform. You know, these two elements coupled with a system integrator like KPMG, who has the ability to deliver a, a minimal viable product rapidly into production and the ability to pivot as the mission pivots is a critical to success. Um, a perfect example of this, uh, just to go back what Jason was talking about is when COVID crippled the nation. Uh, no one knew what the rules were for going back to work, reporting status or getting our citizens abroad back into the country. Uh, thankfully within the client I, I support, we have the perfect platform in place in ServiceNow with a streamlined governance process and an open line of communication with IT. And we also had a highly skilled development team that was able to deliver a solution from inception to production in a week, and then iterate on that solution as information was made available and guidelines were provided. The only way that's possible is by having a tighter integration between mission and IT. That's an impressive example. Well, uh, Jason Gray and Dan Gruber, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to share your respective insights on how governance can really play a critical and central role into improving the delivery of public services. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. You can learn more about federal IT governance at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C., James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll talk to you again Tuesday afternoon. Until then, I'm your host, Billy Mitchell. Thanks so much for listening.